Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'm very excited to be joined by Gail Perry. Gail's fired up fundraising approach, which she's developed over the past 30 years, has helped organizations raise hundreds of millions of dollars in major gifts. Gail was also voted the number 10 top fundraising expert in the USA as voted by Philanthropy Media. She is also a keynote speaker, trainer, and world-renowned philanthropy leader. Gail, welcome. How are you doing today? Great to be here. Oh, thank you, Gail. It's great to have you. So tell us about the beginning of your fundraising career. What were you doing and what were some key lessons you learned in those early years? Great question, because people ask me how I got in, how I got started in fundraising. I had a sales background, and so I was trained in sales, and I was good at sales, and I just thought sales was sort of boring. I didn't want to sell soap or cough drops, you know, or stuff like that for big companies. Um, and a friend of mine said that there was a job open at Duke University in fundraising. Duke University is here in North Carolina in the U.S. where I am, and, and I thought fundraising that sounds like fun because I knew it was sales, but it was mission oriented sales. So I had that little voice inside me saying, that sounds like fun. So um, that's how and I fell into my life work with that little voice directing me to go there. So I, I was lucky. I started off at a really, really large organization, a university, Duke University with uh, hundreds of fundraisers and it was very structured and it, that it was a smart move to start with a large organization to get a handle on how it's really done. You know, before I went out on my own or as a consultant or anything, I went from um, Duke University to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, so I had um, seven years of university fundraising experience. And so I always, I always recommend my, um, to my young fundraising colleagues, uh, to get, get large shop experience because the smaller organizations that are not well managed or well funded can, can be difficult working environments. And they can, um, the, they can be hard on a young fundraiser who doesn't really know how to talk back to the board or how to set a fundraising plan based on the numbers so that the expectations are realistic. So um, very important to make sure that you do get that large shop experience at the beginning of your career. And then you, it, it's going to help you grow faster, I think, and move faster in your career. Yeah, great. Great start to the interview. So what stands out as one of your um, most successful moments and why was it successful? You know, um, in fundraising, we, especially in major gift and capital campaign fundraising, we are all about the really big gift. And uh, when really big gift comes in, really big donors, we set it up so that the, we do all the work, you know, all the work for years strategizing on how to make this happen. And then when it happens, you're orchestrating everything from the back of the room while Mr., um, you know, the VIPs from your organization are taking full credit. 
and the donors are up there and everybody's applauding and you're going in the back of them going, yes, yes, this is the way it's supposed to be. Yes. So it's like you get to play quarterback and it's, it's all, I've always been, it's always been a, a moment that I really enjoy when I knew I made everything happen, but we don't, we don't need or want the credit because the credit's not going to help our organization raise money. Now I know that's sort of a weird, weird example, but it's happened over and over in my career in that I received deep satisfaction from knowing that this was happening and I made it happen. And so that I, in my career, I have deep satisfaction every day from making the world a better place. Cause you know, we do online training. Uh, we do free stuff, a Facebook live broadcast on Wednesdays on our fired up fundraising Facebook page, which I highly recommend. We have a lot of fun at noon us. So it's probably hard for y'all in Australia to grab it, but you can always watch the videos. And then we have a paid membership program and then we do major gift coaching and then we do capital campaigns. And so I'm in touch with uh, fundraisers all around the world, all the time at multiple levels. And they write back and they say, we've helped them. <laughs> you know, we helped them close a hundred thousand dollar gift. We used your, your fundraising by the numbers approach. Boom, boom, boom. So yeah, a lot, I just really enjoy what I do. And it, 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 I didn't want to sell soap or cough drops. You know, I wanted to make the world a better place. When you look back at um, your career, what stands out as one of your greatest lessons learned from a mistake that you've made? Well, you know, I'll never forget the $5 million ass that bombed. And um, I wrote a blog post about it. And we did everything wrong. I wish I, this is, this, if you hire a junior consultant, this is what you get. You're going to bomb your big ass. If you hire a senior consultant who's been there, they know better. Um, we were um, offering a big naming opportunity to this donor and he had good, he was a, he was the right donor. He um, had a long relationship with this little college. He, his right hand lady of his big company was serving on the capital campaign chair committee. Um, we were, we thought we were warming him up properly, but we didn't have access directly to him. We only had access through his right hand lady who was a very big deal. So we went in with an ask and we didn't, we didn't, we, we scripted it too much and we talked and we talked, talked about this and this, your history with the organization. You know how it is big ass. You scripted your history is this, this, and this, and this college is blah, 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 blah. And your company, blah, 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 to this part of the state. And here are our goals. And, and then he said, well, tell me more about this naming opportunity. It was like, he, we didn't, tell him about we didn't help him understand the impact of his gift you know we didn't make him and we also didn't ask him to talk enough right now our approach to asking is very different now because one of the first things we do is that we ask the donor a big ask a big capital campaign ask you know like six seven figures we ask the donor to start off by telling us again about why they care about this organization very powerful because if the donor starts off tell, telling you why they care, it, it elevates the conversation. The donor's getting in touch with that soft spot in their heart about why they care. You don't have to tell them why they care. They're telling you. So it's a very powerful moment. So we've, I've learned through the years that there are better ways to set up an ask and there are ways to be, make it more fun and make it um, more fun for the donor. And to, you know, in the American South where I am, we, we're very polite. You know, I've raised millions of dollars being polite and gracious. So that was a big mistake, how, to bomb, how I bombed my $5 million ass. 
Well, that's great. Oh, that's just a small taste of what we're getting into. So it's very exciting. But for any organizations new to this space, I mean, what's the difference between major gift fundraising and capital campaigns? That's a great question, you know, and um, a capital campaign is nothing but a major gift campaign on steroids. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a major gift campaign with a timeline and a deadline. Um, but major gift fundraising, of course, is when you identify a portfolio of donors who are likely to give to you, which is a big project, big project to identify a portfolio of donors who are likely to give. And then you go through discovery with them because you've got to determine, you've got a bunch of suspects here, right? So you've got to determine if the suspects are really going to be a prospect. And that's what we call the discovery process. And it's really interesting because not all suspects are going to be prospects. And if somebody becomes a prospect, if they have the wealth capacity to make a major gift, and if they have the interest that you can nurture. We don't like the word cultivation anymore. We like the word nurture. So this is our approach to donors. Somebody, some donor said, nobody wants to be cultivated. You know, it feels gross. But nurture, yeah, okay, you can nurture me. Um, so this is the major gift process. You know, you've got your suspects, which is a body of work. And then the discovery process, which is both research and talking to the donor to try to figure out where they stand. And then you start nurturing them and we have a, um, a permission-based asking approach, very systematic, taking the donor down the yellow brick road to, um, to, to when we can uh, put an ask on the table. And we also teach something called the oblique ask, which is dropping the idea of a gift as a suggestion and then just re pulling back. And so you're sort of gently bringing up the topic. So we have a very sophisticated approach now. <laughs> Um, and I would say that I didn't have that approach 10 years ago. <laughs> I mean, where should an organization start with their programs and how do you assist them in their major gift coaching? Um, every organization, large or small, say you're a little tiny organization, you know, and you don't have a lot of internal resources or staff, uh, you should still try to have 10 or 20 major donor prospects that you've identified and that you're developing. I mean, the second director should have a handful of people that he or she can take out to coffee and feel like they're, they're major funders and they're partners. And she, she or he, your, the second director should be able to treat them as friends and partners and not have this really stiff, scared relationship. Um, so any organization can raise major gifts. The smaller organizations just have a, a smaller pool of donors that they're able to nurture. And then the major universities have hundreds of fundraisers because they've got hundreds of thousands of alumni. So they run the numbers. And um, the, the, you, know, how, you know how the big universities do it and how they analyze their gift potential. They, they do the research. They're, they're well screening services, as you know, that can just massively research 100,000 alumni records and spit out the 5,000 that might be most likely to, um, to be donors. And, they, and, they, and that analysis is based on the donor's track record as a donor, as, long, as well as the um, wealth screening information that's publicly available. So then the universities, you know, they do the math, okay, well, if we've got 5,000 donors and we could get an average gift of $50,000 from each one of these, then therefore we're gonna, we can justify the investment of X number of fundraisers. 
Mm, great. And you said before, uh, it's a bit of a, a bit of a dirty word, cultivating, but uh, I don't know what other word to use for it right now. <laughs> so how much nurture is required before you ask someone for a major gift? You know, the great question. I mean, people think that fundraising, major gift fundraising, is all about getting ready for the ask, you know, and um, uh, teach me how to ask. But no, because if you nurture the relationship with the donor well enough, the donor's going to say, I want to help. How can I help? Uh, so the great and subtle work is in the nurturing process. And when I started in fundraising at Duke University 30 years ago, my big VP, who was sort of my mentor, said that um, from the very beginning, when you meet somebody who's a potential $100,000 donor, if you connect with them personally once a month for 12 months, then they will be ready for an ask. You know, now that's a lot. That's a lot to be able to personally nurture a relationship once a month. And because you have to be creative about how you can, you know, what can you do to nurture them, especially in this virtual environment, it's even harder. Um, but, but so now many donors are on different timetables. They may decide, they may do research and decide, you know, I really want to help the food banks. I'm going to take a look at my local food bank. I've got a chunk of money. I'm going to talk to them, see if I trust them, see if they can see how I feel about making a gift to them. So you may have donors who really are really ready, who've already decided that they're going to make an, a gift to the environment and they're just looking for the right environmental organization. Or you may have donors who are, are, are take longer because of life events in their life. There may be divorce. There may be a health crisis. There may be a trip around the world. You know, donors have uh, every, the thing about major gift fundraising and the reason you have to have a smaller group of people you're working with is that um, major donors all have unique personalities and you have to have a completely different approach with every individual, which makes it so creative and so interesting. I've got about 10 different questions I want to ask that all stem off that answer. So it's, yeah, well, it's a great way to ask put them. it, but um, who should be making the ask for these major gifts? You know, who does the donor respect? And um, it may be, if you're a college or a university, it may be a professor who goes along and helps you out, you know, with the ask. Um, we, you know, it could be the executive director, but quite frankly, you're better off having a board member along with, with you if you're going to have a formal ask. Um, because the, the board member is like a volunteer. There's a difference between the paid staff and the volunteer. The volunteers doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're, they don't have any, they're not getting any financial compensation from this organization. The exec director and staff, they're being paid. You see the difference? So I think board members forget that they have a lot of clout because they're only doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're on the high moral ground in a way. Um, but again, who should be making the ask? We're seeing a lot of staff-led fundraising. I've been talking about board members and executive directors. We've seen a lot of staff-led fundraising. And so the staff can do what we call the oblique ask. The staff can say, um, I know you're really interested in this project. Would you like to know how you could really help it, for example? That's our, that's our permission-based approach. Would you like to know this? You know, would you like to know how we're handling COVID? Would you like to know how... Um, what, our, what our issues are right now 
and how you might be able to help. You know, would you like, would you like the help? Is this something you might be interested in doing? So see, these are, these are gentle and polite questions that make the donor feel like they're in charge. And it's not like this wham blurting out an ass, which is gross and it's pushy and it's not appropriate and it's offensive. And so one of our issues with board members is that they think that fundraising means asking, you know, and I'm a nonprofit board member. I'm really well-meaning. I want to help. I'm going to rush out to this big philanthropist in my town and I'm going to ask him for $200,000 for my project out of the blue, out of the blue. And it's really detrimental. I mean, board members, um, one thing I beat into board members' heads that I work with is that you don't do any of this without clearing it with um, the fundraising team because they have information about this donor that will be helpful. And also large gifts requests like um, six-figure gifts are decided on in advance about how they're going to be handled. And we go through a warm-up process. You know, I, I, you know, some people call it permission-based. I also call it warm-up process. But we're, we're developing sort of, I'm not, and when I say we, my partner, Dr. Catherine Gamble, is um, smarter than I am. And she's been in fundraising as long as I have. And we're, um, we're having so much fun developing sort of some new concepts and new approaches to the major gift um, field because there's a lot of old stuff that's been there a long time. But this uh, capital campaigns by the numbers approach and fundraising by the numbers approach is based in analytics is what we're what we're espousing now and we're talking a lot about it and the beautiful thing about fundraising by the numbers jake is that it's not smoke and mirrors and the board members can see this is how much we can raise you know this is what we're working on and here's your job and our job and my job so it's very it's very very thought out and it's based in real numbers and let me just give you an example like um you know, major gift fundraising is seen to be very fuzzy and capital campaigns are like smoke and mirrors. Oh no, oh no, no, no. We're going to put it, we're going to be, we're going to take our donor prospects that let me, no, no, let me give you an example. We just worked on with the North Carolina Arboretum here in North Carolina to design an entire new fundraising program for them to go from, you know, just a little bit of money a year to massive amounts of money a year. We designed that. We presented the report two days ago. And they have 11,000 members of this arboretum. And I'm going to describe the fundraising by the numbers applied to this organization. Okay, 11,000 members. We did a wealth screening and 17% of those 11,000 members have wealth potential based on their activity with, based on internal data, their activity or gift activity, as well as wealth screening. So, so we're extrapolated. And we made a lot of assumptions along the way, but we still based it in some sort of reality that if 17,000 of these 11, I mean, 17% of these 11,000 members are, have potential, um, major gift potential, then they're all suspects, right? Remember I described suspects and prospects? So they're all suspects, okay? So we're here, here are the steps to go through the discovery process. Boom, boom, who's gonna do this? How are you gonna do it? How many are you gonna do it at a time? And you're gonna determine if these, People are suspect. So we figured that maybe one out of three might turn out to be a prospect, right? And then we extrapolate again. We thought maybe one out of three would be, um, would close with a major gift within a three to five year time period. So real numbers, real numbers that are doable. And the staff can get their hands around it and board members go, oh, okay. 
I see. We could do a $9 million capital campaign, nine to 18 million, because if you got one out of three of the prospects to make a major gift, which may be a little high, um, and the average gift was 50,000, that's 9 million. But if the average gift is 100,000, then it's 18 million. So see that, see it, it's really, so, so it, get, it makes people feel more comfortable um, when there's basis for the strategies that we're doing. There's a methodology, everybody understands, and you know, we have these issues with board members who do not understand what we're doing. And remember, board members' job is to give their opinion. So there's sometimes a challenge between the board member's opinion and the fundraising plan, you know, and getting everybody on the same page. I mean, numbers don't lie. So I, we say that numbers will protect you. Your fundraising plan will protect you, will help you keep your job, my friends. It's very interesting. And I think the first question that comes to mind from that, is that the expectation of board members these days? Is that, or is that how you get buy-in, is by running the numbers? It's a great question. Um, and it really goes to the role of the board. And I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> I wrote a book about that. <laughs> um, board members can be really helpful in fundraising. But, but, and a total but, I, they do not have to do all the asking. They do not have to do a lot of asking. Okay. And setting expectations for board members around fundraising, setting expectations for board members around all the different areas of their work, is, is vitally important because they need to know what their lanes are. I'm, I'm on the stewardship committee at my church. I moved to Chapel Hill. I'm not, boom, they put me on the stewardship committee, you know, which is the fundraising committee for the church. And we've got this committee and I said, well, what is our job and what is not our job? You know, are we going to do this? Or are we going to do that? We, what are our lanes so we don't bother other people and interfere in other people's work? And I, I truly think, Jake, that I could change the world faster if I could just get my hands on more board members to help them understand that fundraising can be fun, it's not asking, and that um, here are the lanes where you can be most, most effective. Because, you know, a well-meaning board member will rush in with, a, with an idea. We have got to have a pancake supper. Or we need more new donors because our old ones are going to die off in 30 years. We've got to do more social media, you know, and there, there's no analytics, there's no thought, there's no plan. This, their opinion, it's not based in strategy. Uh, so if you have, if you have a good fundraising plan, that's all laid out. Here's the money. Here's how we're getting it. Here's how we're nurturing donors. It's your job, our job. The board members are less likely to rush in with the idea of the week with the new shiny object, which is a real issue. And they do it because they care and they want to help and they don't know what else to do. I have a theory that if you don't keep your board members busy, they're going to come up with some stuff to do and it may not be helpful. It may not, it may not adhere to the plan. You know, <laughs> I have a lot to say about boards. <laughs> and we're still not even at the board session. It's fascinating because it's so influential on the overall impact of fundraising. Um, yeah. And and you need buy-in at that level or things can go wrong. But before we sort of get into that as well, you mentioned, um, you know, the art of asking. Um, and yeah. You related it before to um, volunteers, but is there any advice that you have for people to master the art? I do have a lot of, I mean, I'm Southern in, here in the U.S. and we tend to be oblique. 
you know, and very gracious and polite. Um, we're not like in your face, like people say, maybe would for, from the Northeast and the New York and Boston area might be. Um, so we take a social approach, an interpersonal approach to developing the relationship with the donor. And we, for, let me just throw out some questions. So this is part of our, our, our permission-based asking approach. You know, could you see yourself getting more interested in our work? What is the most, what is your favorite part of our work? Would you like to know more about this area? Yes, donor would like to know more about this area. Okay, so I'm, I'm bringing the donor in to give them experiences about this area, right? Donors getting really excited. They love frogs, okay? I'm taking them on field trips to identify different frogs in the swamp. Donors weeping with joy. She sees a green one. You know, she's always want to see a bright, you know, like stuff like that. You know, donors are different, you know, or a donor may be, it's a dance company. Donor loves modern dance. Donor doesn't like the toe shoes. Okay, so the modern choreographer is coming down from New York City to set a modern dance on the company. And you invite the donor in to meet and have lunch with the New York City choreographer that she's been worshiping for 20 years. I mean, this is the kind of way that you nurture a relationship with a donor. Or if you're a university or school, there was a teacher who changed my life when I was a student. I get to have lunch and see them again. So stuff like that. So this is why I say fundraising is so much fun when you're nurturing these donors and bringing, giving them experiences that they just are thrilled with. And then you say to them, would you like to know how you could help the frogs? <laughs> or would you like to know how you could help this particular area of our university that you're so passionate about? And the donor says, of course, yes. And so you say, well, you know, you could consider a gift, you know, have you thought about making a, a, a substantial gift to, to help blah, blah, blah. And the donor says, tell me what, how I could help. And you say, well, three choices, a low choice, a medium choice, and a choice that will blow you out of the park. I mean, you, you don't tell the donor that, you know, well, for 20, you've, you've done your donor research. So you sort of know what the donor can give, right? And so um, you say, well, for 20,000, you could do this. And for 50,000, you could do that. But for a million, you could do this. And you just sit there and you're testing the waters. It's all hypothetical, you know? So that kind of ask, I think, is much more successful and more realistic than the formal ask when we go in there with everybody sitting around the table going, this is your history with our college. And this is the role of the college in the community. And blah, you know, it's um, our approach is, is classic donor centered. The donor's in charge. The donor's in charge of every step. Donor's having a blast. Donor's feeling emotional. Donor's not feeling pitched with a PowerPoint. Now, there's, I will say, there's some donors, um, excuse me, um, who are financially driven. And they want the business case and they want the business pitch. And you remember I said every major donor is different. You have a different approach for every major donor, which is why you can't have too many. That's a great answer. So how can organizations find potential capital campaign donors and start converting them to prospects? Remember I told you about the North Carolina Arboretum? They want to have a capital campaign in a few years and they wanna know what their potential is. They wanna know how, what their path is to get there. And so if I were an organization, if I had a 300 person donor list, a 2000 person donor list or whatever donor list, I would start by identifying 
who are the people with potential? Who are the suspects for a major gift in my donor list? You know, who are the people who show up? And I also want to say that, um, you know, there's this wealth screening data that every organization thinks, oh, I need to know how wealthy people are. Uh, we think wealth screening is a shiny object. It's helpful, but people are obsessed with the wealth. For example, if you have a donor who's rated at multi, multi millions, maybe even billions, but they only give you $100 here and there and they show up sporadically. And then you have another donor who's rated at the ability of hundreds of a hundred thousand, not million, but that donor's passionate and they're there all the time and they give you a lot of money annually. Your most likely major gift is going to come really from the more passionate donor who's more active with you. <clears throat> so that's why it's so interesting to take your donor list and sort of think through it. It's a lot. It's a, that's why I keep saying it's a body of work. You know, you can only tackle it in sections. And we, you know, we'll take a list of donors to a small group of board members and we'll say, what do you think? Tell us about these people. Do you know them? Because small community, you often know a lot of these people. Um, so the, if an organization wants to start the process of identifying potential capital campaign donors, you start with a suspect list and then you determine, are they prospects or not? Because you go through the discovery process. And then once you, once you determine their prospects, you find out what, it, what are they most interested in? Is it frogs? Is it toe shoes? Is it their favorite professor? Is it the cancer research at the hospital? You know, is it single mothers who need help with their childcare? You know, donors have a lot of passions. And then you help them understand more about their area of interest. And then you say, would you like to know how you could help? And um, what's changed most over your career when it comes to major gift fundraising and capital campaigns? I've gotten much more sophisticated. I mean, these approaches that I'm sharing with you are developed after 30 years. And um, I also, like you, have a, um, a webinar series and I bring in experts and I've listened to every smart person in the field talk about these topics. And I've listened to them over and over. And Catherine, my partner, has. And so we extrapolate what we think is the smartest stuff that the smartest people are saying, and we develop it into our own methodology. So we think our methodology is really good. I mean, this fundraising by the numbers and capital campaigns by the numbers, we're just going to roll that out later this summer as a brand almost. Um, and, and it's going to have a methodology, de detailed methodology behind each one of those. And, and we think we can really help, help organizations and help boards calm down and, and understand that this really is systematic. And if you follow the plan and work the plan, you're gonna receive the kind of funding that allows you to help more people. If I, I can't quite get board members under control though, that's my challenge. Yeah, I was gonna say, so how do you go in and educate boards and that they have an important role to play in this area? Oh, it's the Fired Up Fundraising Board Retreat. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my book is hidden by my flowers. I moved the flowers over for visual appeal. But, um, okay, so what you do with boards is that you give them a workshop to introduce them to these concepts about fundraising. And the first thing we do is to get them talking about why they love this organization. Okay, so we set up what we a motivational, inspirational conversation among them, helping them share why they what they love about 
this organization and why they're there as board members. So it's a feel good moment. So you're starting off a workshop on fundraising with a feel good moment for board members. Okay, so they're primed to be open to learning about fundraising. Okay, so that, that's like a, that was, that was deep thinking to come up with that approach first. So they start there and then show them how to develop an elevator speech or how to talk to a donor about why they personally care. Um, I, I, I take them through a series of four steps to open the door to a donor. One is to, um, to um, develop your own story. Another one is to invite the donor to share their story with you about why, why do they care about the frogs? I mean, board members share why I care, but what, what about you? Why do you like it? To invite them. And then um, another step is to um, and find out, I'm sorry, the first, excuse me, I haven't done this in a while. The first step is to develop your elevator speech or understand why you care. The second step is how you are being when you share your elevator speech. Your be the beingness is really important. Like if you're embarrassed about this, you're gonna shrink, but you gotta be warm and fuzzy and excited and enthusiastic and have energies that's like the warm sunshine when you're telling people about why you care so much about the toe shoes or the favorite professor or the cancer research. And then you've got to stop. So the first one is your, your, what you're saying. The second one is how you're being. The third one is knowing when to shut up so the donor can talk, bring the donor out or the, or the suspect, you know, as maybe it's your neighbor, you're trying to find out if your neighbor, you got, so I'm, I'm going to cheerfully and enthusiastically share my story. And you stop, you say, what are your impressions of the cancer research at the hospital? get the donor to find out. And then if the, if, if the donors, I mean, if the, your friend sounds like they're interested and they may be a, a live prospect or suspect, then you have a follow-up step. So I just teach board members what to do to open a door to a donor without being pushy. It takes about an hour to go through this little training thing. And then we, we, we have an interview about, I interview the fundraising staff about how do we raise money? Oh, well, how much does it cost to raise our gala? Why do we do the gala then if we don't make any money on it? <laughs> you know, um, you know, or why does it, you know, why are we doing it this way rather than that way? So the don't, board members help understand our current fundraising strategy and why, you know, the methodology and the results. Um, and then, then we'll, we'll teach the board members a little bit more about, um, I try to weave in storytelling when I'm sharing with them the methodology of major gift fundraising. And I try to put them in small groups to come up with their own questions so that we can answer. So uh, training a board is a delicate and important experience because you've got to make it fun. You've got to make it interactive. You've got to make it experiential. Um, you know, adult learners are very distractible you know, and, um, and then at the end, I have them commit to the jobs they're going to do in fundraising. And have you experienced resistance from board members in the past? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But when I tell board members that they can raise money without having to ask, they calm down usually. You know, would you like to know how board members can raise money without asking? Yes, please. You would? Well, it's a thank you process because Penelope Burt, the great Canadian researcher who we all love and admire, 
formulated this research and it's been repeated over and over for over a decade in that if board members, when board members make, I'll, I'll, the very first study she did was the Canadian Paraplegic uh, Association. And the, it was a phone mail campaign. Uh, the average gift was $26, okay? They pulled one out of every 10 gifts to this campaign and have board members make a thank you phone call within 24 hours of the gift being received. 24 hours, board members made a thank you phone call. And five months later, they sent out another appeal and the group that got the thank you phone call gave 39% more money than the people who had not gotten the phone call. And the donor, they, they gave even 42% after a few years. I don't know the exact number. So donor retention was stronger. So we feel like the place where board members can have the strongest impact in fundraising is in the donor loyalty process, the thank you process. And that's fun stuff because you're writing thank you notes, you're hosting donor celebration events, you're inviting them in for tours. And all of that is designed to get the donors to stick with you, to up your donor retention, donor loyalty. And also, um, they will give you more. So what a great job for board members in fundraising. Now in a time of crisis, obviously, where should the executive team's focus be? Uh, well, the executive team's got to make a new plan. You've got to have a new plan because um, everything has changed. Everything has changed. And um, but the, the fundraising methodologies are changing. Um, people are doing virtual galas. I don't know how it, how it all is in Australia right now, but in the US, things are still crazy. And we don't know. We don't know. We've got donors wanting to be face to face in closed door rooms with no mask. God help us right now and so um and then we've got it depends on the part of the country you're in and it's become so political it's very difficult for the fundraiser so organizational policies around face-to-face -face meetings need to happen um executive teams got it they've all pivoted you know because they've all had to reinvent uh how they deliver their service how they communicate with donors all this stuff all this stuff so a new plan New plan and new fundraising plan, real numbers. I just want to say that donors are giving a lot of money during this time of crisis. And we are seeing lapsed donors show back up. We're seeing random gifts of five-figure five gifts land in organizations' website portals with no ask, and they don't know who these people are. And these are not safety net organizations. So we're interpreting this trend as that donors want to do something positive. And so they're making these gifts to just random nonprofits to try to feel like they're doing something positive. And we also see that board members have, I mean, donors have a little bit more money than usual right now because they're not taking their trips around the world. They're not going to New York City for a big weekend of plays and dining. You know, they're not even going out to eat and having parties locally. So my sister told me, my sister's husband is in the furniture business in High Point, North Carolina. And she said that um, people are buying furniture because they're upgrading their homes. They're working on their homes since they can't go out. And I talked to a friend, she said, oh yeah, I've redone my daughter's bedroom and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know? So I would say, don't you dare be scared off by this crisis environment in terms of fundraising. Don't you dare. 
you need to be out there telling your donors and your stakeholders and your partners what's going on and what you need. You're, you're very highly regarded in the fundraising profession. And how can other aspiring fundraising leaders follow a similar path to you? Well, you know, um, I, y'all may remember Jerry Panos, who's the great, one of the great American um, uh, fundraisers. He's passed away. And he was a bit of a mentor to me. And I, I went to one of his um, immersive fundraising programs. And I said, and I'm an English major writer, so I think in terms of writing, you know, and I wanted to write a book. And I said to him, I said, it's all already been said. What can I say that hasn't already been said? He said, yeah, but nobody has said it like your, your take, your personal take. Everybody's got a personal take. And I say that if you want to be, if you really want to make a difference, you've just got to you got to have the courage to go forward and say what you think, you know, and, and I, um, I started this um, blog. I didn't, I didn't peak until I was in my fifties. You know, I didn't know what, um, what I was going to be in terms of like really big until I was in my fifties, believe it or not. Um, When I got these ideas about board members and fundraising, I said, I've just got to write a book. I've got to talk about this. So think deeply about what you're passionate about within this field and learn more about it and start talking about it. I was scared to death to do public speaking. I mean, like scared to death, like dripping with perspiration, almost crying behind the stage going, you know, and I learned how to do it. And now I can keynote a great big room. I learned how to do it. I hired a speaking coach. Because I wanted to learn, you know, I was scared to death to write that first book. I hired a local lady to be my editor to give me confidence. So you just got to, didn't somebody say leap and the net will appear? I'm not so sure that's such a good idea because you got to have a strategy. So <laughs> Yeah. I'm In still business, you need a strategy. Sort of yeah. But my, my suggestion is go for it. Yeah, I love asking that question. It's just great to hear answers just like that. So thank you for that. Yeah. And does anything stand out as one of your yeah, your greatest achievements? I think writing the book was a huge, a huge achievement. Um, I published it in what 2007, AFP and Wiley published it. I probably need, I'd like to do another edition. But I've also, my other great achievement is that I've created a blog post every Friday of six to 800 words um for over 10 years um we're we've got a lot of crisis resources on our blog right now we're talking about how to ask during times of crisis and um how to reorganize your fundraising and what donors want to hear and um how, we have a whole course right now on raise major gifts in virtual times um that we, we've got our second module of that course it's all live today here in the u.s but i've got some people all over the world taking that course so yeah, go to the website for COVID resources. Also at the bottom of the website on the left, there's a category and I've got over, over 200 posts on major gifts. I've got to break them down into different sections of major gifts. I've got a big section on board members and fundraising. Um, so you can, you can see the area that you're interested in. It's all free. And of course you can all, uh, you can bring me in to do a board retreat and you can bring our team in to, to do a strategic fundraising scan and identify your special opportunities to your organization. Thank you so much for your time, Gail. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the interview. It's really fun.